And good afternoon. I am here with Tori Bedford of GBH News. Tori, how's it going? Good. How are you? Thanks so much for, for having me on. I'm glad we're finally doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. And for a lot of us, I mean, definitely myself, we've been viewing Mass and Cast really through your eyes and through your reporting. And without you being on the ground, I don't think any of us really have that much of a clear understanding of what's actually happening. So first, thank you for the coverage that you do. That's very generous. Thank you. (laughs) um, How long have you been covering um, Mass and Cast? I think I've been down there really regularly um, since last summer, but I have actually been going down there to do different stories for for years now. It's been a few years since I initially started covering like, you know, new encampments there. Um, I was covering when the Long Island shelter um, was open. I was doing stories about youth homelessness and I met a bunch of folks that were staying there. And then when it closed, I also covered that. Um, and so I've just kind of been tracking like where are people going? I remember um, that was a huge story after the Long Island shelter closed in 2014. Um, it's just like all this mass displacement and where are we going to put everyone? Um, and that's kind of when mass and cast started to grow and we saw more tents there and this encampment grew to hundreds of tents and the businesses there and the residents there started to complain. And um, I think a lot of people there were, I don't know, it's, it's fascinating because I think we see communities like these spring up in almost every city, like most cities, but this was really such a concentration of people. And I don't know, it just became, it just became like a crisis down there. And you just highlighted what a lot of people kind of indicated the first turning point was that closing of the Long Island facility. But I don't want to um, step over that too quickly because you said that you went over there like once it no, was operational. I, I was going to, I spoke to somebody who was going to give me a tour right before it closed actually, because I had been hearing all these rumors about how it wasn't very well, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I was assured by the people running it that this wasn't true, but that it wasn't very well monitored and that people weren't being treated well and that they didn't feel safe because a big part of, you know, going to a shelter or going to housing for that matter, staying anywhere is that you really want to know the area. Otherwise you don't really know what to expect. And I think a lot of people just felt like being in that shelter, they were being placed kind of out of sight, out of mind. Um, And there's a really interesting history of Long Island. If anyone wants to just go down a Wikipedia hole, um, you know, it was all the Boston Harbor Islands have a really fascinating history, but Long Island in particular, I mean, we have had kind of these medical facilities there and um, just kind of a place where it was, it used to be called sort of like a place to put indigent populations. So there was a home for unwed mothers. There was a home for male paupers, like poor boys. It became like a men's um, mental institution. Um, And way before that too, I mean, there's this crazy story about like ghosts and sailors and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, the history of Long Island is fascinating and I'm not sure what's gonna happen now with that space. I know that Mayor Wu um, has been down there 
with a team to evaluate how much work it's going to take and they're putting work into rebuilding it and thinking about what kind of space it will be but that's I think sounds like years down the road at this point. Do you think the the ferry option is something that the city will end up going to or is that just more of like a, an idea that was thrown out there? I don't know because during the mayoral election Mayor Michelle Wu said that she was against Long Island because it was so costly and we're already in this legal battle with Quincy and the bridge would be costly and it's already been, we've just spent so much money just on the idea of recreating that shelter um, that she wasn't for it. And so it's interesting now that she's even like entertaining the idea of reopening it. I think that she's going to, if she reopens it, it's going to have to be a more cost-effective solution because that was a concern that she had. And I also think that um, it's going to have to be differently. It's just going to have to be really different than what it was before. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not getting too much detail from them when I ask about it. It sounds like what they've put out there most recently is the most up-to-date information, just that they had a visit and whatever comes will be years down the road. Yeah, I would be shocked if we see it in a, a first term for a Wu administration. To me, it's a lot more used for politicians to say, if only we can get this um, facility, then all these problems will be solved. It's a lot more of a dream than I think that's going to end up being a reality. But um, as you're saying, that closed in uh, 2014, uh, and we really didn't start seeing kind of the phrasing mass and cast methadone mile until about 2016. When I was like looking back, that was when that really came into like the public consciousness. And it's funny because the coverage back then was a lot closer to your coverage now in that if you go back to the Globe's um, reporting on like, what is Methadone Mile? It was interviewing one-on-one -on -one people who actually were living there, where now it feels like a lot of the coverage is around what does the community group think and what does the local business association think? And those voices are kind of left out. So actually, there's one person that I want to bring up that um, it seems like you've had a relationship with. But uh, before we get there, 2019, that first week of August was when Marty Walsh did the Operation Clean Sweep. Were you covering that at all? Or is that before your time really on Mass and Cass? I wasn't there at the actual sweep. I covered it kind of in the, the fallout, but I wasn't there um, during the actual sweep. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people who are now at Mass and Cass or were at Mass and Cass recently who were also there for that sweep. Um, I also wanted to say, because you mentioned the Globe's coverage, the, the coverage that they did immediately after the closing of Long Island about people displaced throughout the city, that was amazing. That was really, really good coverage. And I do think now there are still people who are, you know, out talking to individuals. I think I have been, um, returning a lot, I guess. And maybe it's <laughs> just because of my own, like, I just keep coming back. But I think in terms of other people, I, you know, I don't think people are just covering the business association or the residents. I've covered those voices as well. I think they're really important. Um, but yeah, the Globe's coverage after Long Island was amazing. Um, yeah. And I wasn't there. So I wasn't, I covered it the sort of before and after, but I wasn't there just do the kind of on the ground coverage of the sweep that I did um, in November and then again in January. And it's vastly different. I mean, I think so when we talk about Operation Clean Sweep, I think there were 34 arrests total that resulted out of that. It was really a police raid. I think there was a lot of aggression. You know, there was a, there was legal complaints that came out of it. The ACLU got involved. 
And they didn't give people, the city didn't give people a place to go. They just said, you have to clear your tents out of here. It's a blight. These tents keep collecting, like, get out of here. And it's like, go where? Essentially, you take a person and you're like, okay, you're banished from the city now. So just figure it out. Um, and then in November, uh, former acting Boston mayor, Kim Janey, she had a street cleaning where you know, it was, it was proposed as a way to get people into housing and to get people rehabilitation. But they also, and this is not something that Janie did. I want to clarify this because I do think that there was some press that attributed this to her, but it was in sequence with her plan. So there was a, a trial court order to create a courtroom in the Suffolk County Jail and people were processed through that. And the goal that was publicly stated about that is that they would be focusing on people who were preying on the community there, but the majority of people who were processed through that makeshift courtroom were actually processed for low-level drug offenses. They were all, they all had outstanding previous criminal warrants, but they ended up closing the jail down early. And they said it was because of low capacity, but they actually met capacity at every single day. They had three jail cells every single morning they started out. They didn't have anyone arrested because they didn't want to keep people overnight. The judge would go into recess. They'd send the police out. The police would make arrests. They would bring in three people. And every single day they met capacity of what they could have in that jail. And so to close it due to low capacity was, I don't, I don't know if that was the reason, but it's over now. And then uh, Janie's, you know, I think a few weeks after the street clearing, another encampment popped up. And, you know, according to her executive order, you couldn't build tents in the city of Boston under threat of arrest. And that executive order still stands. There's still technically a law that says that you can't have a tent or you'll be arrested, but no one has been arrested. No one from the Janie administration arrested anyone for refusing to move their tent. It's just that no one's refused to move their tent because they understand that they could be arrested, I think. Because of the, the implicit threat of arrest. The law exists. So even if no one's you know, the ACL, this is what the ACLU uh, sued the city over and they lost because no one was arrested, I think. I mean, the judge ultimately said, like, you can't prove that anyone was, you know, arrested or that their belongings were like, there was no constitutional violation here. So then in January, Mayor Wu came in and what she did in the weeks preceding that was she actually arranged housing for um, 154 people. So they did this, well, not quite that many. And as I say, actually, yeah. can I pause you right there? Yeah. Because um, you just said so many fascinating things about Kim. Okay, Kim. sorry. And then, <laughs> I, then I want to get to um, okay. Wu came in. I mean, first, one little closing thought uh, with Operation Clean Sweep is it seems like that was a retaliation. It was a correctional officer that was, I guess, like in a street fight or an altercation. And then within hours later, they did, they started doing mass arrests. And I think that, as as you described, it was a lot more aggressive because I I view it as a lot more of a retaliation by the police because of a correction officer. Yeah, there was an attack on a police officer, and then in response, they said we're clearing everybody out. But it was, um, I think, the significant differences were obviously the methodology, the fact that folks got arrested, and the lack of places to go. Like nobody had anywhere to go. And so after Janie, you know, you saw people returning to these encampments and building new encampments near Newmarket Square. So I was down there talking to people and 
you know, the question I think that this is the thing when people talk about Long Island and, you know, if we rebuild Long Island, then this problem will be solved. But Long Island is a shelter and you really have to investigate. And, and I think this is what the different municipal administrations have been doing is why don't people want to stay in shelter? And why don't people, because, you know, after the Janie clearing as well, they said this many people and Wu as well, like this many people went home to go stay with their families. If that was an option, like a good, safe option for them that was preferable to them than staying in a tent, why weren't they doing that before? Why doesn't everyone just stay in shelters if shelters create an environment that they feel safe in? Why would someone risk their lives, risk freezing to death in, you know, in a tent rather than staying in a shelter? And so I think that's kind of been the evolution of this is like, where do where can people go you can't just offer people shelter it's not a safe and viable alternative only based on the response from people who even under threat of arrest because that executive order still stood when those encampments came back you know when all of those encampments came back after 2019 and after Janie's um clearing and then that executive order people still came back because they would rather face being arrested and potentially freezing to death than have to go to a shelter where they, you know, people talk about being assaulted. They talk about having their belongings stolen. There's just like a lot of fear about COVID because of staying in a congregate setting and shelters are really, really burdened right now. And the pandemic has not helped that. And so if you talk to somebody from Pine Street Inn or another shelter organization, they'll tell you that this has been a really difficult two years for the shelter network. They recently asked the state to increase the budget by I think double for shelter resources because even before the pandemic, shelters in Massachusetts were not receiving enough to make ends meet and to, to cover those services. So I think that that shows, you know, in that lack of resources, that shows in the, the fact that people who might need shelter and, you know, will occasionally go if it's a life or death situation, will really prefer not to. Um, and the Wu administration offered alternatives in terms of housing in this unprecedented way. So, you know, we've never seen this many people get into transitional, affordable, temporary or permanent low income, low threshold housing in such a short span of time. It is significant that she was able, you know, they. The city went out, they counted 145 people living in tents. They did a census and they really undercounted, but they were still able to get people, 154 people as of the sweep. And then in the following weeks, they added 10 more people. So 164 total. I asked them for the most recent numbers. I think that's what they have, although I'm sure you know more people, they, they say that the outreach work continues. The problem <laughs> I think that I've seen is that they did promise the people who were living at Mass and Cass that there would be housing, safe, you know, reliable housing, affordable housing, even if it was a place like a, a box in the park, at, you know, the Shattuck Hospital or a, a hotel room like that you would have a roof over your head and a door with a lock and a key like you would have housing not a congregate shelter and 
I think for some, you know, it's really hard to say the amount of people, but there's probably between like 75, 100, probably around 100 people who did not get housing or have not been able to put themselves in a position where they can ask for the resources that they need. I think people don't realize that just like how much paperwork you need to have to get into any kind of housing. Um, you know, if you go to a shelter and your ID gets stolen, then you have to get another ID because if you don't have an ID, then you can't, you know, you've got to get your like your social security number and all of this other documentation that you need to get. And there's a lot of people who, you know, if you talk to doctors who are working with, with people um, down there, there's this intersection right now of people in different kinds of crisis. So people are dealing with substance use disorder, people are experiencing homelessness, and people are also carrying so much trauma. And then on top of that, quite a few people, a lot of people down there have medical issues that are associated with being homeless. So, you know, medical issues that become really, really difficult to deal with in that environment. And then, you know, because they're exacerbated by that, they um, become really hard. Like it's, it's part of this process where you're just, you know, there's these cycles that are created. And I think stabilizing people in that environment has been a big challenge. So yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's this evolution of, of responses, but it has been, I will say it has been really unique. This most recent sweep, it was staunchly different than like the 2019 one, or even the November, the one from November that Janie did, which we actually put a stop to. She paused it because she wasn't happy with how it was going. So Actually, um, and again, you're laying out so much. I'm trying to keep track. Sorry, I'm trying to talk sure to shorter sound bites for you. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm using the TikTok medium, so yeah, nice yeah. and quick. But I, I want to get your um, input on something, and this is going back to Kim Janey. I, I still have uh, a few questions about Michelle Wu because you are kind of outlining. If you looked at this as three different sweeps, you could, I think, in good faith, say that uh, Marty Walsh's was the most punitive, severe in terms of like the force that was used and then more moderate with Kim Janey, more moderate with Michelle Wu. Would you agree with that characterization? Yeah, I think or? so. I think so. I mean, I think the experiences of people down there will vary greatly based on everybody's bringing in something different. And a lot of people, when they got a heads up or they knew that something was coming, they could avoid the area. People did that in 2019 as well. But I think definitely, I mean, if you just look at the the lawsuits that came out of the 2019 one and then from Janie's as well, and then there's, a, there's no lawsuits out of the Wu one yet. So I guess, yeah, I agree with you. So one big question mark I have, and this is still about Kim Janie, was why do you think Kim Janie attempted another sweep? Because at that point it was, you know, middle, end of October, early November, she already got knocked out in terms of the preliminary. She could have very easily avoided this, coasted, and then just passed the reins to Michelle and says, this is on you, I'm done. And for me, I've always had a question of why she, in this last minute effort, tried to take this on. Do you have any insight or input as to why do you think that happened? I think that during that time, after the summer, there was this heightened and coordinated response from the New Market Business Association and residents where they were putting a lot of pressure on government officials to 
clear tense out of that area. Um, and it was such a big part of the mayoral election that it became this issue that the government, I think that Janie felt that she needed to deal with. I also feel like she, you know, I think technically she was an acting mayor. I don't know how the, you know, the technicalities of that she was, but um, she didn't see herself that way. I don't think that she necessarily saw herself as just a placeholder for that position. I don't think she's the type of person who, when faced with a crisis, would not act. I think that she wanted this to be solved and she wanted maybe that to be her. I don't know. I mean, I haven't, that's a good question. You should ask her, but I think that if that was her legacy and if it had, you know, worked out, I think it's really hard to understand, you know, how things actually work down there unless you really invest the time. And there are a lot of social workers that are really frustrated because there's stuff that may not be immediately obvious, right? And so you really can't come in and do a press conference during your mayoral run and then leave. You have to like actually spend the time. You can't come in for 12 hours hypothetically, and then leave. You actually have to come every day. Like people need to form relationships and understand who's there and who's doing the work. Um, and I think that she may have thought that this was going to be effective. And in some ways, I think, you know, you could argue that it was because it sort of moved things forward. But obviously if you're clearing tents out and then people are coming back, um, and the new mayor is saying, stop. <laughs> um, I think that maybe things didn't go exactly according to plan. I don't know. I mean, there's been no sort of um, response from anyone in city government to say like, this is, this is not what we wanted, except that Michelle Wu, Mayor Michelle Wu, during the, you know, when Janie was on her way out said like, we have to do better and paused it. So I think that she wanted to have a different approach. And perfect, perfect way to lead into that. So Michelle Wu wanted to do a different approach. It was, you were describing it earlier, a lot more, and this isn't to say this wasn't happening before, because I know there's a lot of people doing great work, a mess and cast before Michelle Wu came on. Building relationships, doing one-on-ones, getting people in a very slow process, but was working, getting them into housing after you build those relationships. The, the number that pops in my head is maybe around 60 or 80 people from when Michelle Wu first started until maybe end of December, they were able to transition. So it was a hundred, yeah, 154 by the time that they um, did the sweep. So that included everyone that they had, like you mentioned, they had already, before the sweep, there were already people that were placed in housing. Um, and so, and then, so, you know, Michelle Wu was doing that strategy until, think, we'll call it December 15th. I might be off by a day or two. And then um, her administration announced that on January 12th, that's the deadline we're going to be cleaning up the area. Why do you think she made that announcement in terms of like giving herself a day and a time that we're going to keep doing this process of just doing the one-on-ones, convincing people to go in. But if they haven't made that decision by January 12th, we're going to kind of give them a little push into it. Do you have any insight into why her administration decided we're going to set a goal and then we're just going to do a sweep afterwards on this goal? I don't know. And I wish I did, because as you mentioned, 
it was working, the process of actually doing outreach with people. And they were able to transition more people than they had counted in their census. I also think it's difficult to say that you're doing outreach and developing relationships. I mean, obviously there are outreach workers from Barbara Guinness and from the Boston Public Health, like all these different people. But if you're coming down there and you don't regularly talk to people and you're like wearing a badge or a suit or whatever, like you may not be able to find people, people will avoid you. When you do just one census, some people might be in jail during that time or in rehab or detox. Some people might just not be there and they'll come later and be like, I wasn't counted, why wasn't I counted? I've lived here for years. I think that they were attempting to do that kind of one-on-one -on -one work. And on the day of the actual sweep, the Newmarket Business Association paid people who had been living there to clear out tents. So they got like a stipend for the day to clear out all the tents and encampments and put things into the city garbage truck. And they were working with the city outreach workers. And I think that that might be the explanation. I think that it might just be that, you know, you've got this pressure from these businesses and these residents that are saying, it's all talk. You all say you're going to clear these tents out of the area. You know, there's, and they start to focus, the rhetoric, rhetoric starts to focus on tents and garbage and you know I think there was some someone who wrote about it who described it as like a flood of filth which I just like I think when you have that describing an area and you're describing a group of people you start this it starts like the boundaries start to melt between like whether or not you're describing the people or just the objects as trash mm -hmm. so I think that I mean that's a whole other subject but I think that that kind of pressure for something to change to see a visible change to remove what was considered this blight you know and also for the community to feel safer um because they had mentioned you know all these public safety issues i think that's probably why i think that it ended up coinciding with the like the coldest day of the year so you know that was kind of also I think, I mean, that was a coincidence because they didn't know that was going to be happening a month prior, but it demonstrated some of the safety issues as well. There were two um, bodies that were found dead in tents that week, just on the morning of the clearing. So, you know, they could say, look, this person experienced an overdose or they died from the cold, but like, this is not a good environment. This is not safe for anyone. I think that that was part of the pressure. I think that you know, the idea, the way that it was put forward was this is not a safe environment there. It's too dangerous for people to be living here. It's too cold. People are not being monitored properly. Um, and it's just not, it's not appropriate for human beings to be living like this. And so we are going to create all this housing. I think six different sites, you know, we've got the roundhouse, we've got the shattuck, we're building it up in like six weeks. We're going to have all this brand new housing, you know, you didn't think that we could like do this so quickly because you've been calling for it for years, but here it is. Everyone's going to get housing. Everyone's going to be safe. Everything's going to be fine. And then doing this sweep, which of course, if you counted everyone there, it should have worked out. Everyone should have been assigned housing, but they just vastly undercounted. And so now there's all these people that are just kind of left behind and they still don't want to stay in shelters and they still don't want to you know, go stay with family or whatever their options that they're being offered now. 
Shelters are also really crowded. So even people who do want to go to shelters, people who want to get into detox, I mean, these lists, there's still these long lists for that. So it's just kind of, you know, okay, the significant amount of people, right? And they, and it's described as like a start, it's just slowed a lot now. And so there's people who've moved to going to live like under the BU bridge and city workers might be looking for them to help them. But if they don't know that they've moved there, then it's gonna take an outreach worker who knows that person to like go there and talk to them or what, like I'm talking about social workers. Like I talked to Bob and Christy from Project Do Something Boston and they're great because they've been doing this for six years and it's just the two of them. And so they really, and they really connect with people. Like they just talk to people like, you know, like they're people. And so they know everybody and they've been helping the city out in this way, but it's, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing process, I guess. It's just slowed down a lot. I think we hit this, this wall kind of, and people who were promised, you know, who were told that they were going to get housing, they're really frustrated because they didn't. And now they don't know if they will. And you used a phrase that I think was the title of a piece that you wrote recently, A Broken Promise, six weeks after City Sweep and Mass and Cast. And uh, okay, the broken, I didn't say broken promise because that was a quote. So oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, good, good clarification. Right. And so in this piece, you followed up with three people that you've also interviewed before. And I think um, it, two of them might be a couple, if I have that correct. Yeah, there are two people in a couple, so that's four people. Okay, um, so, yeah. um, so <laughs> I'm not a math major, but I think that's yeah. Yeah, um, um, I, I'm I'm hesitating before I attempt the names, but Lilia so, and Alberto. Yes, Lilia Ruding and Alberto. And so, um, uh, actually, let's save their story for the second because okay. the first, um, Max Kladoka. Kladka. Kladka. It yeah. seems like his experience varied wildly between uh, Kim Janey and now most recently. And because I believe he was caught up in those quick courtrooms that was going on in um, the beginning of November. And I think he was denied a treatment facility and instead was placed in a correctional facility. Do I have that correct? Yes. So he was actually arrested while he was going to get methadone. He had just transitioned from the Springfield methadone clinic program and he was going to Bradston Street and he was arrested on four previous criminal warrants. And his, you know, I was re-listening actually to the tape from his trial. They had this makeshift courtroom and they would delay throughout the day, like, because they couldn't do the things that they actually needed to do in a real courtroom. So it was very kind of stop and start. And I remember during his, they would bring us in and then he wouldn't be ready. And then they would bring us back out. And I realized the reason for this after the, the session, it was called the community response session, um, was that he was just very deep into withdrawals, like opiate withdrawals. So he was already going into withdrawals before he was arrested. He said that he was in the back of his cop car just crying because he, you know, this was like this was to me this moment that became really pivotal in his life. He, you know, didn't expect that he would be arrested that day. He didn't know about some of these charges because they had been sent to an address, a family address that he, where he didn't live anymore because um, he was experiencing homelessness. And he just, you know, he, he came in, was completely shell-shocked and his body was going through withdrawals. So 
that day, his uh, defense attorney said, you know, we've been trying to secure him a bed all day. My understanding of this session is that it's not only to bring up these previous warrants, but that it's also to get people the treatment and rehabilitation that they need. We have a bed for him at a rehab facility available. Can he go to that treatment? He needs it. Like he is actively in withdrawal. And the um, prosecution agreed with the defense and said, yes, that we agree that is the purpose of these sessions. And we would also support that he go to that treatment. So this is a representative from the city. And the judge said, no. Okay, like he, all he said was, okay, he's going to Fitchburg, which is where he had to go answer for a warrant. So he went to Worcester that night. He stayed at the Worcester House Corrections. They do not have a methadone um, treatment facility there. I think there are seven jails in Mass. I might be wrong, but there's a number of jails in Massachusetts that have methadone suboxone treatment like programs and they're not one of them so he said that he just spent like the night on this jail cell floor um wrapped up in um like the green burrito like he's like naked underneath and 20 24 7 the lights were on he didn't have toilet paper which is significant because as you're going through opiate withdrawals your body is just rejecting waste and you just Feel, he said it felt like his bones hurt. Like he was, if he, he said if he could have switched a button on his life in that moment, like he would have pressed it. And, you know, he did that until he had his, his Fitchburg trial date. Then he um, got, I think a $5,000 bail, was paid by the Mass Bail Fund. They put him into a um, facility in Worcester, it's like a Kind of like a halfway house like a, a you know rehab detox facility he was able to get methadone there um there was an incident there that involving someone else trying to attack him and he they both got kicked out he ended up back oh before that he was at barbara mcginnis which actually where we met we met up he didn't know how long he would be there for so he gets put into this kind of systemic process he's going through all this stuff um then he ends up in worcester um, then he gets kicked out. I see him back on Mass and Cass and he's just like, I don't know what to do right now. Like I'm just here. And I, this is crazy because I've just had this insane month where I've just been put through these systems. Um, and, and, and I just want to make sure it gets highlighted that he was put through that entire system, not because the prosecution, uh, wanted it really just because the individual judge decided that this is what should happen to him. It's very rare that the defense and the prosecution will both agree on something and then the judge will be like, no. And he actually didn't give a reason. He just said, okay, he's going to Fitchburg. Um, so I, I've talked at least on this program um, about the power of judges in our society, but just how ridiculous and cruel that is that just because of one person's political leanings, whatever view on morality gets to determine someone's fate like that. I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know what his logic was because he didn't provide, you know, he wasn't, he didn't really provide any kind of um, explanation as to why. But um, yeah, I, I interrupted you, but um, I, I think things get better for Max. But so you, you saw him on Mass and Cass and. Um, yeah. And then he called me, I think it was mid December. And he said that, you know, it was super free. Oh no, it was actually three days. Before, it was three days before Christmas. It was the 22nd of December. And he had lost a few phones. 
um, in the, you know, either he, he would give me a number, the phone would get stolen. I wouldn't hear from him. I would show up at Mass and Cass. He would say, here's my new number, whatever that phone would get stolen or he would lose a phone or he would let someone borrow it. And he said that, um, he was just walking around. He didn't really have anything. Everything had just been stolen at the last shelter. And so he was just walking around, um, to stay awake because it was so cold that if he fell asleep somewhere, he was afraid he was going to freeze. We didn't want to go into a shelter because he's just like, I just had a terrible experience at the last shelter. Like, I don't want to go through that again. So he's just walking around. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that sounds really dangerous. Like, please shoot me a text or give me a call or something. If you like, if I don't know, like in the morning, just be like, I'm alive, which he didn't do, of course. So then I'm like, then I started texting all these like social workers and people being like, have you seen Max? And I think that was like most of my communication with a lot of the caseworkers and people who are doing outreach at Mass and Cass was just texting like have you seen Max and showing up and being like have you seen Max today for months like I can't tell you the amount of times that I went to even you know when things change so I guess yeah I should I'm all over the place but he gets a call a couple weeks later he's got a couple caseworkers from the Justice Resource Institute which is a new nonprofit that started last December they're working with him they're getting him housing in like the Symphony neighborhood and within a few weeks, he was able to get the paperwork and he got an apartment prior to this week. But even then, like meeting up with him, you know, he would say, I'm going to be at my apartment at this time. I don't have a phone again. I got stolen again. Meet at this time. I would show up. He wasn't there. This happened so many, so many times. And I think it's like, it is impossible to conceive, like just to think about what it would be like to go through this amount of change in your life when you have not had an opportunity, especially if you have been experiencing homelessness for a long time, and especially if you started when you were young, because you don't have an opportunity to kind of build the skills that we really take for granted. So I think, you know, even things like just like making it to doctor's appointments, being available, having a phone, um, it, it's just, it's, it's almost like a cultural difference. Like it feels like something that we really, it's like a, it's a privilege that we have that we don't think about at all, if that makes sense. Oh, that's um, a good point. Yeah, but and he he gets into this new apartment and he's got a studio now and he can stay there, I think for up to six years. So he's got permanent housing options. So there are different. Awesome. Houses. Yeah. So I spoke to another woman, Heidi, when I first met her, um, she was out on the street. She was in this really dangerous relationship, like very physically dangerous, um, scary. She's had a really, really tough history with relationships in the past and with substance use and with homelessness. And she was moved into temporary housing, which gives you, you can stay for, I think it's like a year or 18 months. So the temporary is like a year. And then the more permanent is like section eight, stuff like that. Or you get like a six year lease through set up through one of these nonprofits. No, that, I mean, that's great. I'm glad to know he's doing well. I wasn't sure if he secured that housing as a result of uh, the sweep on January 12th and Michelle Wu's program, or this is something completely separate from that? I asked, yeah, I asked him about that. I was like, do you think that you being arrested, because he obviously wasn't there for the census, because he was like, you know, or maybe he was, because the if the census was taken in mid-December, then he would have been just have been kicked out of that. Um, but he never really like stayed in a tent. He never set, he was kind of a, he drifted around, he would sleep in train stations or whatever. Um, so I think that the documentation of him having gone through these systems, I was asking him about 
whether he thinks that made his profile higher because sometimes if you're invisible, like they just can't find you to help you. Um, and I don't, it's just like, I don't know. I think we know that JRI helped him and we know that um, he was somebody that was part of the city's effort to help and that he was helped. And so that's good. But, you know, he was, he was saying it, he's, there's no way for him to think about his arrest. And then that experience in Worcester as like in any way, a positive thing. No, um, not at all. And before that, I mean, it was also mentioned during his trial that he had been to, I think four rehab facilities in the past two years before that. So he had been going in and out of these facilities for a long time. And he'd always said like, it's just, I don't have housing, you know, and he's, he's doing good. Like he has a place to stay, but it's still a really difficult ongoing process that, um, you know, I think it's just going to be a long-term there's just going to, we're going to see, you know, we've already seen some people get kicked out of the temporary housing. Um, you know, I think in terms of setting up opportunities for people and a pipeline for people down the road, we'll see what happens with that. Sobriety is not a linear journey as, you know, as we know. And, uh, I think, yeah, it will just, it's just, this, like, this narrative though, I guess there's a reason why I kept going back down there because this narrative that, you know, we got people, got the tents off the street, like problem solved. It's just not the case at all. It's, there's almost more hard work that needs to be done now. It's not so much about getting people out of their tents. It's about, you know, disrupting a community and then having to find ways to help a group of people who individually are so different and come from such different backgrounds and bring such, such different experiences to the table. And you, you've circled um, to this a few times, which is great, which is for a lot of people, it's hard for them to understand why, why don't you just go to the shelter? And, and, and you've spoken about, well, there's a lot of reasons people have been sexually assaulted, physically assaulted, they get things stolen, they're worried about COVID. They don't have a family to go back to. Um, I, most recently on the Bay State banner, they had um, the title Mass and Cast Problems Spread to Nubian Square. This was on March 2nd. And um, somebody just had a, a quote, uh, quote, those who do not want help, as we say in Roxbury, will deal with you through the law. And it's, I think within the last few months, some people have started to understand why it's not so easy as just saying, go to the shelter because there's a lot of just reasons people don't want to. And my biggest concern, and, and maybe um, I still want your impression on what happened on January 12th. I know we're coming up to generally when I like to uh, wrap up, but you know, like as we were saying, they had a very deliberate approach this time, one-on-ones, building relationships. January 12th, that's when they really said, no, no, you have to do this now. Uh, nobody was arrested, but there was always the implicit use of if you do not comply, you're being uh, disorderly conduct. I think your first offense is a fine. Your second offense, you could be in jail for six, uh, six months. And as you said, not everyone was given housing. There are still some people who were never provided with what they were promised. And now that they've had that massive disruption of the community, what I'm concerned is, is that that hard work of building that trust has been broken, just like as it was with uh, Marty Walsh and then with Kim Janney's attempt, so that if in the future people do start to congregate again, it's going to be very hard to try to rebuild those relationships because of what happened on January 12th. That's my general fear. And I, I don't know if 
I'm mischaracterizing that or if you have really any input on what do you think maybe the future would be like or how do you think the people who were living on mass and cast now view, I'll call it the new administration, even though they might not necessarily view it through that political lens. I don't think that when people talk about, okay, there are some people down there who are just like, they've been down there, they know everybody, like Christy and Bob, for example, or, you know, there's a few people who work for Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, people out of McGinnis, like there are people who have been down there who know people um, and they have relationships with people. I don't know that they would um, talk about, like talk about it that way. And it makes me think that when we talk about relationships with people that those might be a little bit exaggerated. Like I'll go down there sometimes and people will say, like you promised you'd get me housing and you didn't give me any. And I'll be like, I never said that. I have been very explicit with you about why I'm here. And let me just repeat why I'm here and what I do. Um, but I don't think that, you know, there are in, like, I think that if you are working with the city and you're saying we're creating relationships, there might be, it might be the case that a lot of people just see you as this group and not as an individual, whereas there are individuals who have relationships. I don't think those relationships with those individuals will change. I, I think that they're the people who I know who got into housing did not believe that they were going to get into housing until they actually you know, sign their, they signed their lease and they brought their stuff up and then they were like, I guess I live here, but they always had the fear that they're going to be kicked out again. So I don't think until you actually show people that they have a new house or an apartment that's theirs and you don't, you know, it's, it's just like a process that's going to take time. I don't think there is a, a trust from anyone right now. And I don't think there really ever has been because you can be on a housing list for 10 years. And that's why it's significant that Wu was able to move more than 160 people into housing. That's why is because these things are so slow and they take forever. And, you know, the housing crisis is really the bigger picture because when we talk about like affordable housing, like what is affordable in Massachusetts, right? So if you have people who cannot afford a place to go and don't want to stay in shelter and you keep promising them, like, you know, that like when you're on an airplane and the pilots like five more minutes, like five more. And they use that trick where they keep saying five more minutes. Right. Cause they're like, we'll get, we'll get to you. Like, we'll get to you. Right. Like some of these people who I spoke to were housed, like they had been on these lists for years. Heidi was able to get housed because she continued to work at it. And she had a motivation to continue to work at it because she wants to have a relationship with her children. And that is the thing that was driving her. She needed that motivation and that was able to help her. And then other people helped her as well. But, you know, it really comes down to, having faith in the system that has historically not worked for people. So I don't think that those relationships in general, um, I don't think there's like a great relationship between people who are experiencing homeless at Mass and Cass and people and in the city. I don't think there ever has been, I don't think there ever will be. Um, but I do think that there are individuals and the individuals who go down there, who people actually know who have relationships, who provide Narcan, who are on the street, like actually, communicating with people and treating people like human beings, those are the people that have the relationships and those people are not going to, you know, you're not going to stop having a relationship with somebody. You don't have a relationship with a community. You have a relationship with an individual. Um, I wanted to talk about Wilnelia and Alberto because we mentioned them earlier. Um, 
So the night that, um, the night of the clearing, Mayor Wu and the Mass and Cast star Monica Burrell were down um, and like down the street kind of surveying Atkinson after all the tents were cleared. And I was saying, okay, there's like 50 to 75 people at the end of the street. A lot of people think they're waiting for services. And I talked to a lot of people at the engagement center today who said that nobody talked to them about housing options all day. And uh, Burrell said, well, every single person down there has been given an option that's safe and they might just be congregating there right now, but they'll be, you know, going later to where they need to go. Like everyone's taken care of. They've been spoken to at least three times. And so I mentioned, because they just came to the top of my mind, the, the, this couple, Juan Lillian Alberto, I was saying they spoke to me earlier. And then at the end of the day, I checked back with them and they said, nobody has talked to us. We don't have anywhere to go. Our tents cleared out. All our stuff is gone. And Wilnelia and Alberto are both really, really sick. So he's HIV positive. She um, at the time had stage three cancer, like a cancer of the blood cells and also has lupus, which is a, a kind of autoimmune disease. And so she's, you know, she's got this injury in her arm that's like needs medical attention. They are severely immunocompromised the reason that they don't go stay with her family in Worcester is because they all just had COVID. And so they don't feel safe to go there. I mean, with their medical conditions. And so I described this immediately, Monica Burrell is like, okay, bring them over. Let me talk to them. The city sweeps in, they put them on a bus. They go to a hotel for the week. The next week I come back and they're back at Mass and Cast and they're saying, we, you know, they're not giving us anywhere to go. They just keep telling me that we need to go move in with her family, but they all just had COVID. Like, I don't feel safe. Um, and the last I saw of them, because they're at the engagement center all the time because they need to be, they get medical treatment there. I mean, Wilnelia has lost, she's lost a lot of weight. Um, she was 245 pounds. And since then she's lost more than a hundred pounds from doing chemo. Um, and she gets chemo at BMC and at the engagement center. And she just hasn't been able to hold down any food. And last time I talked to them, they were just both really angry and frustrated um, because I don't think they feel like it's possible to deal with these medical conditions and go through the stress and kind of the trauma of going through chemo while also not having a place to live. I mean, when the engagement center closes, they don't have anywhere to go and they don't want to go to shelter because it's a congregate shelter where some people will test positive for COVID and they're sleeping in these, you know, close proximity to someone else. As you mentioned, the shelters are really overburdened at this point. Um, and I saw Lanelia and she said that her cancer has now progressed to stage four. So she was saying like, I saw her, I was like, you're eating, like, this is great that you're eating. And she's like, yeah, I'm just going to stop doing chemo because I, it, like, if she said, like, if the streets are already going to take me, like, I'll just let, you know, this take me too. Cause she was saying like, I don't want to, I don't want to go through chemo right now in this, like, I don't have the will to fight basically. And I don't like, I know they're just two people. But if there are a hundred people kind of in that position or in different positions like that, um, you know, I don't, it's just, it really is, we, they don't have time. Like they don't have time 
to wait any longer on a housing list. You know, like her situation has progressed to a point where she really doesn't know if she can like keep going like this. And so, you know, I understand everyone has a different situation, but I think what, what struck me about them is just that like, the city was able to offer resources immediately, but then those resources dried up. And now I know they're working with people. It could be a situation where they are not, you know, collaborating or being cooperative enough about paperwork or something. I don't know, but um, yeah, it's just not, they haven't had the same kind of ending that like Heidi or, or Max had where they ultimately were able to find themselves in a better place and then do the work that they need to do. They're still living on the street and, and dealing with these medical conditions, which is just, I don't know. I don't think that, I think that Lilia feels like she's just kind of reached her limit with that. No, it's absolutely horrible. And you mentioned, because I don't want it to get lost on people, kind of the bureaucracy behind even just getting into these shelters where, oh, you need this paperwork. Oh, you need to have this. And just like the amount of burdens that we put on people, which I generally view as a deliberate strategy of trying to filter. And so if we only have a hundred hospital, if we only have a hundred beds in a shelter and there's 200 people that need it, we can say, oh, we're offering shelter to everyone who needs it, but I'm going to put roadblocks in the way so that 200 that need it become closer to 100. And like we, like we use similar methods with like food stamps, for examples, or with welfare payments. We just create burdens and then we just kind of filter people that way. I'm not going to ask. Testing, yeah. Yes. Um, ultimately. And, you know, as you said, like this is almost a foundational housing problem in how we choose to put our resources into housing in the city. And I know Michelle Wu has, you know, done the home rule petition for a 2% tax on $2 million, which would be fantastic. Um, I'm very skeptical if that has any uh, chance of even making it out of the legislature, never mind getting uh, signed by the governor. But so that's going to be years in the future before we have the money coming from that. But as you said, this is uh, people who have really hit the end that something needs to happen now and they just don't have any faith in it, which is not really the most optimistic way for us to be uh, wrapping yeah, up. Yeah, that's really dark for people. And that's the thing about Massacast is right near all these clinics and medical facilities and detox facilities and places for people to go to access stuff that they need on a daily basis. And that's why people concentrate there. Um, it's not because people love living in tents near each other in near the highway. That's, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't think that's it, but uh, I think, you know, when you have things to offer and you have resources, People, you know, Mary Walsh was saying, oh, well, people will come in from other places. I think that the, if the city of Boston, sorry, there's like sirens happening. Okay. If, the city of, if the city of Boston, if Mayor Michelle Wu had said, you know, um, I think you're right. I think you're right about the, the one day push thing. Like that was, that kind of was, was in conflict of what the mission of this was. And I think that, um, you know, it's also, just to say that there are new people who weren't here during the January 12th sweep and they've come to Mass and Cast since then. Maybe they were, you know, doing a detox or whatever, but there are people who were not here prior to the sweep. Um, and so where you have resources, there will be people coming in that are new and you're not going to be able, I don't think, to, I mean, this is, I guess this is just what governments keep saying is that you're not going to be able to accommodate everyone. So I think that when we look at this, it's like, 
I interviewed the, this, this woman who used to run the bridge over troubled water um, shelter, the youth shelter a long time ago. And she said this thing about how, um, you know, helping youth experiencing homelessness was like going to a river and seeing a bunch of babies drowning in the river. And she was like, do you run up to the top of the river and try to stop the flow of like babies falling in? Or do you run to the side of the river and try to pull them out? Or do you go into the middle and try to teach everybody how to swim? And like, she put it this way. And I was really struck by that because she was like, what we're trying to do is like all three things at once. And it comes as part of this ongoing process, right? This, these pipelines that need to be created, these systems and cycles that lead people to these situations in the first place. Um, all of that is going on at the same time. All of these things are mixing together. And I think, you know, it, it just requires like, like we, like if you're basically, if you're going to say that you're going to give people housing who are already in a place and then you don't give them that housing, that is, that is a, an empty promise. Right. But as, if you're also going to say that this work is ongoing, you know, and you've had 10 people since the sweep added, what is the capacity to add more, right? If you can within six weeks add these six sites for people, you know, to live in either temporarily or on this pathway to more permanent housing or whatever, um, what else can you do? So it's, so it's all these things at once. I don't think that I'm trying to be like critical or even like, or praiseworthy or whatever. It's more like, this is the situation as I see it this is what happened and it's unprecedented in so many ways. And I don't know, it's heartbreaking, but it's also, you know, this, this thing that we've never seen before in this one area where the same thing keeps happening over and over and over. No. And um, I think that's a great um, place to leave it there. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. And for, again, thank you so much for all the reporting that you do on this issue because myself and most people in Boston wouldn't know a lot of these stories or even about like how was that temporary course working under Kim Janey? What was the actual reality on January 12th? A lot of that wouldn't have happened without your reporting. So thank you so much. I, I have one other question. Um, and this is just something that I get asked or criticized a lot um, because some people view me as a journalist and then they talk about I'm being biased or and I have to explain, I'm not a journalist. I just record things on TikTok and I read journalists and I explain to you what's happening. And so I'm just very curious, um, do you also get criticized DMs from people who say that you're using the role of journalism to push your own agenda? Or have you experienced things like that, at least, you know, specifically here in Boston? I'm just curious. Um, no, I don't really, you know, somebody was surprised, I said, like, um, I was talking about creating boundaries around, um, you know, journalism and versus activism with somebody. I was like, I'm not an activist. And he's like, really? And I was like, absolutely not. No, I, uh, I don't, you know, I don't think of myself in like, I don't, I think there are journalists who I, I acknowledge that my work has an impact you know, in bringing up a cut, like the couple to the czar of mass and cast that has an impact on where they'll stay that night, which put me in a weird situation ethically, because I think that I had some influence on whether or not on that particular night, they got housing because I brought it up to somebody in power, right? I am a per I'm in that situation. I am an actor. I am not just observing when I report on what's happening in the 
the courthouse at Suffolk County Jail and then it gets shut down because of low capacity. I have to, like, I don't, you know, there was a lot of public pushback because of that. I do, th I think that you, you have to acknowledge that the way that you write about things and the things that you write about and the quotes that you use and the stuff that you choose to cover, it does have an impact. I don't think that I'm just like this benign observer or commenter, but I also don't see myself as an activist because I don't, all, all I was, all I've ever been doing with this, um, and I appreciate you saying like, we wouldn't know about it. it like, that's very kind. But I, I mean, there were other people who were covered, like Deb Becker was in that jail. I kept going back to the judges because I'm like obsessed with it, but like she did a great job for BUR. And, you know, there have been some good, um, like people who have the, the resources to cover this. But um, I, one compliment that I got a lot was like from other journalists, they would say like, it's really hard to like, um, you know, like cover, this community. And I think, or, or people would say like, thank you for, somebody recently said like the only, like the, the, the reporting that reflects the reality that I see. And I, you know, it reminds me of like, when I cover, you know what this, it reminds me of when I covered like the George Floyd protests in Boston. And I saw a police car like drive into a crowd of people, which then started off what became, you know, people getting pepper sprayed and like people throwing water bottles. Um, I mean, it, I don't know if it inspired it or if what, it just seemed like this, like I was, all I said on Twitter was like, I saw a cop car drive into a crowd of people and someone was like, no, you didn't, you're making it up. And so I think it is different because it's not just like, I, I could verify that if I asked other people that saw it, but I also saw it with my own eyes. So this is like, when I'm talking to somebody and they tell me like their experience, I don't know if I can necessarily believe it. I verify it as much as possible. I talk to family members, you know, I go through my due diligence, but I also see some things with my own eyes. I see a prosecutor and a defense attorney agree on something and then a judge reject it. And so all I say is like, this is what happened. I don't talk about it in terms of like what should be done or, I mean, I realize like we're here analyzing it. So this is a little bit like, I guess, my analysis of like, I don't know why they would do it in one day is you could say that's biased, um, I guess. But I also just don't really know, like maybe there's a good reason. I think that there was a lot of pressure from the New Market Business Association. I think there was really cold weather. I think there were a lot of factors. Um, I don't, yeah, I think the DMs that I get from people usually are, um, they are people telling me that I'm like an idiot or people asking me if I'll like send them feet pics or something. So I, I don't know, it's a range, but um, to the latter, I'm considering it. So I will get back to you. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I, I think that I, I think that journalism in the past, like covering political stuff too, in like the Trump presidency, you know, you have to draw these lines where you, you believe in a like there was like truth and then there was truthiness and sometimes you do actually have to believe what you see happening right in front of you and report it in that way um i think there is a place for analysis i don't try to do too much of that but you know i think that all i've done so far is just provide examples of like what I've seen happen in front of me in this area and learn as much as possible. There's still a lot that I don't know. There's a million perspectives. There's never just two sides to a story. 
And I've also interviewed like a lot of residents and businesses and, you know, I've, I've taken the time to really try to get to know where everybody's coming from. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think that, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, oh, that's okay. Um, I'm just, that, you know, just the facts, ma'am. I, I really appreciate it. And again, thank you so much, Tori. Have a good evening.